0: This is Fortress on a Hill. Thank you for joining us. I'm Henry.
1: And I'm Danny. We're here to tear apart recent stories about our nation's armed forces and our veterans.
0: We hope you'll take a critical look at what's happening with our military. And we hope you enjoy the show.
1: Now, let's get started.
0: to people listening, are there any, you know, Danny and I are always on the hunt for some kind of nuanced war film that actually gives some opposing sides in it. And we generally don't find it. It's just a backlog that glorifies war without any examination.
2: Boy, I wish I could offer you some great suggestions on that. Um, I mean, since I was a kid, I can remember my dad taking me. I lived in New York City. We used to go down to uh, 42nd Street movie theaters that had, you know, double and triple feature westerns and war films. I used to watch the old war films with him sitting there. And he would sit there silently. Uh, I mean, that generation, the so-called greatest generation, had never thought of themselves that way. They didn't talk about their wars really very much. But I, I saw his wars on screen, and so I thought I knew, you know, they were always glorious. We won. It always worked out well. But, you know, so, I mean, I have seen many war films in my life but American war films—it's hard to think of one to recommend. I mean, there's *Apocalypse Now* for instance, um, but I have some problems with that. Uh, I mean, i, I think it's a, a distinctly imperfect film. It was an attempt to redo the 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 Vietnam War critically, and, but I think I think because it, it chose to do it in the context of Conrad, uh, uh, of the of his Congo that Congo novel of his, right, the, *Heart Native, of Darkness*, the natives. Yeah, the heart of darkness where the natives are left on the riverbank. Basically, the same thing happened in this film. You know, the Vietnamese are off in some corner somewhere. It's all about Americans. But nonetheless, it certainly is more interesting than most of them. I honestly, if if I were, I, I had one experience as a kid that was unique in America, which was I lived on Fifty Eighth Street in New York City, and there were a ser- It was probably the only street in in, in the United States in the 1950s, that had three foreign film houses, played foreign films. Um, I knew the manager. I became friendly as a kid with the manager of the, the film house next to me, and he used to let me in everything. So I used to go by myself to all these foreign films. And actually, it was it's the foreign war films that might be interesting to look at today. I have to go back and look at them. But, you know, you'd go see, uh, like, the, 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 there was a German film called The Bridge, about uh, Nazi, about about kids being hustled into Nazi uniforms to 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 fight the Americans in the last days of the war. It was it was an anti-war film, quite grim, you know, which was striking. The, the, the Russians did some. I mean, uh, there was uh, oh god, the cranes are flying. You know, there were some some grim and interesting Russian war films. There was uh, uh, Sundays in Seville, which was the Algeria, the French Algerian war. I mean. I might look at some of those foreign films. But American films it's not one of the great you know, it's a great tradition if you like if if you like the Marine hymn to start up and the, the Marines to advance. But otherwise I would say maybe not.
1: it's interesting and, and sort of striking that you would recommend foreign films, although I have to agree. Vietnam created some imperfect art, but at least the Vietnam War created some artistic movies that attempted to grapple yeah. with the broader themes, You know, whether it's Platoon or uh, or Apocalypse Now or even Deer Hunter in its own way. These are imperfect films that at least tried to look critically at the nature of that war. What's fascinating to, to, to Henry and I as we talk about this is that almost all the war movies made about the post-9-11 wars, whether it's The Hurt Locker or American Sniper or Lone Survivor, I mean, essentially, they, they are... Two types of stories, sometimes mixed together, and the story is one of uh, basic heroism, and then the second story is the comradeship under fire, and and that's about as deep as it goes in the current movies. It's either a flag waving uh, action adventure, or if it's a little more complex, it talks about how you might get addicted to combat and how all you have are your brothers. But to me, that's so insufficient, because it doesn't. You know, the the unspoken elephant in the room in every one of these movies is the Iraqis or the Afghans, who are really dehumanized, and there's no critical look at why we were there. Uh, At least a movie like Platoon attempted to look at both the, the nature of the human condition as well as the complexity of fighting this type of war. There's nothing like that today, and I agree with you. We probably do have to go to the foreign films, which is really an indictment of uh, not only American filmmaking, but also of this American moment that you spoke of in your book,
2: which kind of leads and me I, to the next... I have to, Go ahead. I have, just before you, I have to say, I ducked most of the present war films. I just couldn't face them. I mean, I saw previews, so and I went, uh, I don't think I can
1: do it. So, you you didn't really miss are. much. They, they make me yeah, more angry yeah, yeah, than yeah. anything else. Uh, so, yeah. the, you know, we're talking about American exceptionalism in a weird way, um, maybe in a darker way, because we're talking about how American films are are, are so lacking when it comes to war. We're also talking about uh, the way uh, America reacted to the post-9-11 moment in this uh, triumphalist way, which made me think of uh, two pieces ago, uh, one of your more recent pieces. You called it the Caliphate of Trump, which was striking. And, yeah. you know, you sort of described what it is that makes this president, and I think more importantly this country in this moment, extreme you know to put extreme in quotes yeah. well we love the term extremist as it applies to islamic or islamist or even white nationalists we we like to throw the word extremist especially after a religion uh so can you kind of discuss your argument in that piece and maybe explain why you think so few americans see themselves uh, as an e- extremist nation yes
2: um well you know, uh, some of it, I mean, you know, it's funny, I'll tell you where I started. When I started thinking about that piece, it's something that's been on my mind for years. Um, I mean, we know that they, i.e. the, the Islamist extremists, they, you know, they, they have suicide bombers. They, they, you know, they've walked into weddings and generals and whatever and killed people. And, 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 and it, it is extreme. It's horrific. You know, it's the, those, those suicide bombers are, you might say, they're precision weapons. Um, but this, and, and that story you can read here endlessly, you know, because it goes with all the fears of further terrorism and so on and so forth. Um, this, there's one story that Tom Dispatch has followed over these years that you can find almost nowhere else. I mean, you can find the literal news reports. If like me, you're a news jockey and you're looking for them, but by about 2013 or 2014, I had counted eight weddings three countries, Afghanistan, Iraq, and Yemen, that that were that that the that US air power had blown to smithereens, Sometimes killing bride, groom, musicians at the wedding, whatever. I mean, and, and 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 they got, you know, some of them got some attention very briefly here. I mean, I remember because I was struck by it, uh, one of the New York newspapers, the Daily News, um, when a CIA drone took out a Yemeni wedding party. Their headline was a joke headline, Bride and Boom. Now imagine for a minute if some lone wolf Islamic terrorist had walked into an American wedding here and blown up the bride and part of the bridal party and so on and so forth. Um, You would have three weeks of 24-7 coverage or something like that until the next horror came along. But this passed in a day as a joke. So... I mean, that's the first thing, is the, there, there is a kind of, uh, we, I mean, uh, only one of those weddings did we ever apologize for. I mean, most of them seem to have had nothing to do with terrorists or anything else. It was mistakes of some sort, or we were just killing people who were gathering. Um, you know, and that, to me, you, you, you wipe out at least eight weddings. That's an act of extremism, you know. And, and then I look, part of the thing is that our, Extremism is more, it's A, it's more distant from our lives. We don't see much of it. And B, it's kind of systemic. So for instance, you know, we garrison the globe. Americans never think about this. I mean, we had, we've had up to a thousand, um, uh, bases. It's now the estimate now is about 800 around the planet you know, every every continent, everything but our obvious enemies, you know, there are, there, there, and they range from American cities to small to tiny, to tiny, you know, outposts. Um, but this is extraordinary. There's never been an imperial power with this sort of, that, that has ever garrisoned the globe in quite this way. The Brits obviously came closer, but not not at this level. I consider that extreme, funding the military. We put... A trillion dollars a year, according to the. There's a guy who writes for Tom Dispatch, William Hartung, who's an expert on the Pentagon and so on. So he, and he put this together. It's probably higher now, but when he did it a few years ago, we were putting a trillion dollars into uh, what's called the National Security State, the Pentagon, intelligence agencies, all 17 of them, what's now called Homeland Security. Um, that, you know, that is, that's, to, to put that much money into that, it's, it's given given what money doesn't go into, I, I think of it as an extreme act. We've been fighting wars 17 years, invasions, occupations, air campaigns, drone strikes, et cetera, et cetera, never ending. I mean, this is in a world in which the last American victory, arguably, in the world was the taking of the island of Granada back in what? I don't even remember what year.
1: 1983.
2: 83. Thank you very much. Um, you know... That I mean, it is extreme to fight wars never-endingly, and I mean, I'm struck. The Washington Post reported recently that on the that the phrase now on the lips of senior commanders, senior officers, I think, was what they said, was um, um, infinite war. That's I mean, not even permanent war anymore. That is war that will never end. That's that's that's, that's it is extreme to think of yourself as fighting. Never-ending wars. I think those cities I talked to you about simply, you know, just simply, you know, in response for 9/11 that one day's disaster to to in essence destroy city after city across the greater Middle East. One is in one is in North Africa, and Libya. One is in the Philippines. Now our our air force that one our air force had nothing to do with, but it was an, another destroyed setting. And this is like what our wars have in, in essence done. Uh, displacing people. Uh, I mean, you know, so many people have been displaced. It's, it's, I think it's quite startling. I mean, the numbers of refugees. Like I said before, are just a staggering highs. Um, and and that is extreme to do that to to, to for, for so many children in particular to have been displaced, to have become refugees, to have lost everything that would be meaningful to a child, the stability of a child's life. That is extreme. Arming the planet. We are, we are an almost monopolistic armor of the planet. When you look at the figures, you know, it's, uh, um, I mean, between 2002 and 2016, we transferred weaponry to 167 countries, That's 85% of the nations on the planet, and a lot of those weapons went to the most you know, devastating hotspots in the Middle East and so on and so forth. That is fanning the flames. I find that extreme, and so on and so forth. I mean, I think, I think you can make an argument. Or it's not the kind of extremism we usually think of as extremism, but we don't think of ourselves. Americans think of this, you know, it's our government, we're fighting our wars, and so on and so forth, That they don't think of these things as extreme, but if you step back for a minute and think, you know, there's a kind of extremity to the particular national security world that we're now in. And it's an extremity for us, and it's even more of an extremity for people at the receiving end.
1: Absolutely. It's interesting. I think one of the you know, seminal American uh, character traits, it seems, is a lack of self-awareness, just the, the lack of the ability to see ourselves in anything close to an accurate frame of mind. Mm-hmm. Uh, S- Secretary of Defense Mattis, he just released his national defense strategy uh, months back. I wrote a piece for you um, that the Army didn't like, that they have uh, just begun uh, uh, chastising me for, uh, where I sort of critiqued uh, Secretary of Defense Mattis. And uh, I was critiquing his view of the world, and he talks about how there are revisionist powers like Russia and China, and then there are, quote, rogue states, which was a really popular word during the Bush years, and, of course, North Korea and Iran were uh, were top of the, the pile, it used to be Iraq as well, and it's hard not to listen to what you're saying, as well as to read your article, The Caliphate of Trump, without wondering if America is truly the roguest of rogue states in the world, seen through a certain prism.
2: I think you could make that argument, at least. Yes, I mean, but it's not a prism we ever look through. So, it sounds like a kind of an extreme argument here, but I don't think it actually is. I think it's, I think it makes, I think it makes sense.
0: Well, I wonder about uh, people like people in the same generation as Danny and I, but have no military friends and have no. Uh, they they watch the, all the movies that we've been talking about. They've been watching The Hurt Locker. They've been watching Zero Dark Thirty. So. By the time they actually get to one of us who has some kind of counterpoint, they've received 17 plus years of propaganda, essentially, and especially if they have military friends, veteran friends that really say this is necessary, you know, that it, it's it's really hard when everybody has been received that much input over that long period of time without actually yeah. touching anything anybody who was actually affected any other counter views that's like my favorite movie when i was younger was black hawk down but there is no counter view in that film there is no counter uh, yeah. Yeah. any of that to, to to balance it out and that's that's the hardest thing for americans to do i think
2: yeah yeah and i mean that is of course in its own modest way what tom Dispatch does try to do but but as you point out you know i mean obviously most people don't read tom Dispatch. The cell.
0: It's not an issue. Uh, yeah. No, I've I've uh, I've had a couple little short arguments with a former squad leader of mine since Danny and I've started the podcast, and I usually enjoy it. I usually, I mean, it's not it's not super nasty or anything, but he really really doesn't like some of the anti-war stuff I put out, and I I yeah. I like having that discussion with him.
2: Well, I have to say, uh, I mean, one of the things that I actually am proud of at Tom Dispatch is, you know, I've always felt that, that 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 people who have made it through, you know, who have had the the in these years that military experience from inside the military and come out of it with a critical point of view, have something, you know, incredibly valuable to offer the rest of us. And that's something at Tom Dispatch that I have tried to forefront. I mean, there are a number, over the years, there are a number of, you know, uh, well, Danny is the exception because he's still in the military. Their are former military people who got out of the came out of the military with a perspective on what indeed our wars, our national security the our obsession with national security and so on and so forth is all about. And I think I think I think that perspective is invaluable.
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. So um wanna shift gears here a little bit here and, and go back to the Iraq war for a second. Um during uh, during that era say you know 2001 to 2008 the the only combat veteran i remember in the bush administration was Colin Powell and yet he participated in everything pushing for the war alongside Dick Cheney and the rest but they specifically used his clout as a general and as a combat veteran to sell the war now in that same period of time Eric Shinseki was forced to resign after telling congress how many troops were needed to invade Iraq despite being proven right many many times over by history, but Powell chose to play that part to the bitter end, and it, it's we're seeing active duty people at times expressing dissent in some very impactful ways. Danny is a great example. Uh, Simona Skew and the black and the group of black female West Point cadets holding up their fists for police violence. You know, another great example. My question to you would be: What do you think are the most powerful acts of dissent that? active military, and veterans can take. How, how best can veteran cred be used today to help the anti-war movement?
2: Well, um, I'd say two things. One, one is I just have to say something about myself, and something about Tom Dispatch, which is you, you can, you, you, Tom Dispatch offers kind of pieces that try to offer you a different framework way of thinking about our world but the one thing it doesn't do, and the one thing I basically don't do, is I basically don't tell people what the hell they should do.
0: Sure.
2: You know, I don't, I don't figure, I, I figure that there's something I sometimes see about the world that I think is different, and that's worth telling people about. But, but I don't think I have any special, you know, access to what people should do. And so I kind of avoid that. So I think, I don't think I can tell you what, what military people should do. I think I think I think people know that for themselves.
0: If if they have
2: that feeling that they should do something, they have a sense of what you know, I I think the only thing I would ever say about people is is, you know, don't go beyond your own moral compass, whatever it is. Do something that's within the realm of what you feel you feel is 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 is, I you know, just don't don't you know, I, I I I think, you know, even small things Can matter a great deal. The real problem isn't what any individual military person should do in terms of an anti-war movement. The real problem is that since March, April 2003, or maybe a little beyond, when, if you remember, leading up to the invasion of Iraq, there was the largest uh, anti-war movement probably globally in history. I mean, it was on the streets of, I was, I was part of it, it was on the streets of American cities, but also global cities. Millions of people went out to say the obvious, which is, don't do it, this isn't going to work, to say something that was right. And something, you know, and, and, and all the people who said, you know, who were writing that we should do it, I mean, some of them have offered kind of mea culpas, but they're still writing, they're still being asked for their opinions. People, people who went out and said, don't do it, are no longer, they just, they were never asked their opinions again, basically. But an enormous number of people went out. After that moment, the, I, in essence, I mean, yes, small groups, called Pink, some small uh, anti-war vet groups, and so on, there basically hasn't been an anti-war movement. I mean, the striking thing about this, this period is Americans, you know, you know, George Bush after 9/11, one of the more striking things he said was he told the Amer- his advice to the American people, and this was relatively quickly after 9/11. He said people should uh, it was either go to Disneyland or Disney World. I'd have to look it up. But right. he told people they should go they should go to Disney to Disney World. I think, and um, um, they should continue their lives. They should continue, in essence, to consume. They should, in other words. The, the thing this government has done is it has fought its wars while telling people to go right on with their lives. Nobody has been there. There have been no war taxes. There have been no war drives, no war bond drives. There's not, never been the equivalent of, of the World War II victory gardens. Nothing. You know, these wars are fought without relation, without it, almost in a way that accepts the American people that they should thank the warriors, the heroic warriors. Endlessly. That's the one thing Americans are supposed to do. They're supposed to thank the military. Other than that, Americans aren't supposed to do anything. They're mobilized for absolutely nothing. And the sad thing is that they have not, in these years, basically mobilized themselves, either in or out of the military. I mean, there are exceptions, and there are there are some, you know, moving military exceptions to that, vet groups and so on. But but when I think back to the Vietnam era, where that where the anti-war movement by the last years of that era was being led both by military vets and by people who were still in the military. I mean, the military was a boil with protest. By the final years of the Vietnam War, it was startling. I mean, there was a there was a military figure, a guy named Robert Heinle, who wrote at the time in Armed Forces Journal, and 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 he he compared the American military at the at the as as Vietnam was in the latter stages of the Vietnam War. He compared it to. The Tsarist army of Russia in 1917 and the French army in 1917, which was also both of which were armies who seemed to be, well, the Russian army simply disintegrated. The, the, the French army was wracked by revolts and so on. So he was not writing a sympathetic article. He was writing, he was a military man writing a, an article about the, you know, trying to just catch the nature of the, of the uproar. There's been nothing faintly similar. And that, as I say, is, I think, largely was the result of the the ending of the draft.
1: So, Tom, that leads into my next question. I was going to ask you to sort of tell the listeners about your experience in the Vietnam generation, you know, the protests, the sit-ins, the anti-war journalism and such. Um, And and we've already talked about it, how it compares to today. But you you interviewed some soldiers, is that correct, Uh, at one point during the end of the war? What was that experience like?
2: Ah, well, you know, we had, you know, the thing is that the anti-war movement at that time was significantly a military movement. So, I mean, we had, I worked at a place, uh, it was an alternate, it um, uh, was an anti-war press, I suppose you'd say. It was a place called Pacific News Service, which closed only recently, actually. It went on for years. Uh, and it was, it was the West Coast version of Dispatch, which was, Dispatch was the place that released Seymour Hersh's me lie. Um, Revelations, and we were kind of we then set ourselves up. We, I mean, the fellow who did it, said, I, I, I came to work there, set itself up as the, the West Coast version of that. And uh, you know, we had we had we uh, had we had guys in Vietnam writing for us. I remember there was a guy who wrote for us under an, uh, 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 anonymously, and the Pentagon tried to track him down. They looked up everybody named I don't know Weintraub or whatever it was in Vietnam to try to track him down which they couldn't because it wasn't really his name, but we had, you know, I, I, I just, I, I, I lived in a world of, uh, you know, that was in which, in which, you know, basically GIs were passing through all the time. That was, that was, that was what it was like then, you know?
1: It's, it's so interesting because it is so different today. in the uh, it's,
2: it's completely different. Yeah.
1: I think Henry and I could both speak, you know, Henry is a veteran me as a, uh, a veteran and, and soon to be, uh, you know, career-ended officer. There's, there's, there are relatively few of us. And if you do speak out against the Warren Henry, you can back me up here. One of the common refrains or retorts is, "Well, you volunteered. Why are you complaining?" Right. Right. Which is right. a massive yeah. logical fallacy. I mean, it's yeah. just, it's just yeah. full of problems. Yeah. But it, but yeah. it makes sense intuitively yeah. to so many people who think on the surface. And uh, And it
2: also makes sense in terms of what I was just saying, which is that you can trace so much of this back to the fact that we created an all-volunteer military, which would function almost, you might say, although nobody thinks of it this way. Actually, I had a military man, an ex-military man, who wrote for Tom Dispatch and and, and used this years ago, Uh, uh, William Astori, who was an uh, Air Force lieutenant colonel. He he described the American military in these years, this was years ago, as a... uh, Basically, he compared it to the French Foreign Legion. I mean, it's not a literal comparison, but in terms of it being sent, being sent into foreign lands and left to do its damnedest without, without any particular, you know, uh, response at home.
1: I really like that analogy, and I, I can't help but wonder yeah. if in the American case, it's almost like, you know, in many cases, people from the French Foreign Legion either came from other countries or were natives of uh, French colonial possessions. In the United States, we are sort of a foreign legion, except we're, we're sort of internally colonized. What we've done is we've taken... Uh, people from the south, the, the southeast, the deep south, yeah. and and the the far mountain west, uh, by and large, we've taken people from these small towns, uh, created military castes, sort of families, and then put them into this utterly professionalized force and sent overseas to do our bidding. And once we're sent overseas, we're not to be heard from again. You know, we're not, we, they don't want to yeah. hear our complaints. You're just there to do a job. The job may never end. And and very similar to the French Foreign Legion, there isn't a lot of discussion in the streets of Paris about what the Foreign Legion is doing, and there isn't a lot of discussion in the streets of New York City about what the professionalized U.S. Army is doing, and it's, it's very, very discouraging. Exactly right. Exactly right. Yes.
0: So, Tom, I, I heard a journalist I follow recently on YouTube refer to Barack Obama and Joe Biden as war criminals for their continuation of the CIA drone program, and I found that among any war circles the term war criminal can get passed around and even diluted in its use. Bashar al-Assad is definitely a war criminal in my definition, but not to the extent that a massive invasion of his country is warranted. However, now we're using that description to push regime change in Syria. My question for you is, do you think the term, and others like it, you know, baby killer, mass murder, or anything like that, do you think that we've used them too much, that misusing them has has wrung out their meaning over 17 years, especially when dealing with people like Mike Pompeo or John Bolton, who take those uh, titles and weaponize their use in the media?
2: Um, I will just, again, personally. I just figure I am not a judge and jury. So I'm an international tribunal. So I probably would not use the phrase, you know, war criminal, in terms of Barack um, policy. But um, you know, I, you know, what I would do is use just more descriptive terms. I mean, for instance, in in 2012, when I just when I when I read it was a New York Times, you know, breaking story that. Um, Barack Obama in the White House presided over what were called Terror Tuesday meetings where they had so-called baseball cards with uh, the bios of uh, uh, suspected terrorists on them, and they discussed these, and they put people onto what was called a kill list, and then the CIA's drones were sent out to try and kill them wherever they were in the world, more or less, I mean, relatively speaking. I wrote a piece called Assassin in Chief because I realized at that moment that, you know, Chalmers Johnson wrote Blowback, who was a most interesting man. He used to refer to the CIA as the president's private army. Well, that drone air force is the CIA's, is the president's private air force now, functionally. Um, And the idea that an American president would have such an air force and would be able to send it anywhere on earth to assassinate somebody so-called they're usually called targeted killings um or targeted strikes Uh, but basically it's an assassination i realized it wasn't just barack obama but any american president donald trump is now assassin in chief he's actually upped the uh the, the, I would come Tom Desch has an article about it today. He's up the drone. you know, again, very little attention is paid to these drone killings here. But in essence, even though assassinations are theoretically illegal, have been were made illegal after Watergate, you know political assassinations, um, we in essence do assassinate people around the world by drone. And so any president from now into the distant future, as long as this situation exists, will functionally be, among other things, an assassin-in-chief. That's a phrase I would use.
1: It's very interesting that you use the term assassination to show how insecure and sort of touchy the military is. Um, One of the first articles I wrote, uh, very soon after starting writing for you, I wrote a piece for War on the Rocks about not letting Barack Obama off the hook for his... Uh, for his crimes, or maybe a better word is just for his, you know, his militarism. And I thought it was important that we not let him off the hook. Uh, as liberals, that we shouldn't just give him a pass. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I, I sent the article through the public affairs office at Fort Leavenworth uh, to a lieutenant colonel mm-hmm. who outranked me. Mm-hmm. And his job is to make sure that it's uh, acceptable mm-hmm. for, for for consumption. And uh, he 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 didn't agree with most of what I had to say, um, and he let me know that. But he said uh, everything I was doing was within regulation but um, that the general, he had shown this article, he knew it was sort of gonna be uh, controversial, he'd shown it to the one-star general, second in command of the post, and he said, this is what he told me, he said, General Kem, uh, is really would like you to use a different word than assassination with respect to the drone program. He said he can't make you, because technically yeah. uh, I was correct, yeah. he said, but he would really yeah. like you to change it to targeted killing. And that to right. me was just this, what a moment in my head. I said, wow. They, they're right. the euphemism right. factory that we've become at this point. Yeah. Where we we we're, yes. we're so touchy about it. But that's exactly what he is. You're right. Assassin in chief is a perfect title, not only for Obama, not only for Trump, but for American presidents from now until potentially eternity. Yeah, until until wherever. Absolutely.
2: Yeah. And they and they have embraced it. I mean, Trump has now embraced this. I mean, I mean, and in fact, he's he's done something. I mean, you know, in the Obama period, it was kept within the presidential sphere and he's now he's now given the okay for such assassinations such targeted strikes to take place to be ordered without presidential approval basically so he's actually expanded the thing right
1: well henry do you have any other questions i think i think um, we've got are, some great are we stuff, there? So i want to let you i want to let you henry yeah. do you have one more
0: i do i do i got one more if that's okay okay great um I feel very strongly we're on the verge of a, of a new conf- conflict with Iran, but our military is nowhere near the size needed to, to do such a mission. Not that that stopped us before. Um, we're already seeing US use of proxy forces abroad. And when that invasion of Iran comes, do you believe that America will kind of collectively exhale and go on with their day, or is there a chance that the Size and scale of what's needed to invade Iran could breach, you know, breach some of those thought bubbles on views about endless war.
2: Well, you know, the first thing is this is just me. You know, again, I, I the future, the future is dim. So, um, <laughs> I, I, but I mean, I agree with you completely. I mean, it, it was obvious now that you have, you know, you have two people. I mean, I mean, let's put it this way. You know, the adult in the room now on on an invasion of Iran is James Mattis, Secretary of Defense, because we know that the Secretary of State, Pompeo, and the National Security Advisor, uh, Bolton, are both raging Iranophobes. Um, and, And so the adult is Mattis. And Mattis, you know, he was basically, well, not quite fired, but let's say... Quietly relieved of his post as, as U.S. CENTCOM Central Command commander, which which was the the area that would have included Afghanistan, Iraq, you know, uh, uh, Iran, and so on and so forth, because he was obsessed with Iran. He was obsessed. He wanted he wanted to launch a plan to take out an Iranian oil refinery or power plant. He was angry because the Iranians he felt were giving were giving arms to Iraqi militias that were killing American soldiers. Um, so he himself—I mean, the, the sanest person in Washington now on a war with Iran is a man who, in another context, would have been considered a, 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 an obsessive about a, attacking Iran. So that's where we are. So I agree with you that that um, that the the urge to somewhere along the line get in get go, go at it with Iran beyond sanctions and so on and so forth is there. I doubt. That, that there would be, a la Iraq 2003, a full-scale American invasion of Iran. I don't think that, even for these guys, I don't think that will be in the cards. I think we're really talking about a potentially major air war. Um, you know, maybe maybe with, you know, I, I I don't think the other troops are there. I mean, you, you, you would not have enough American... Yes, you say. I don't think you could even gather an invasion force. You can't. The Saudis wouldn't do it. The Israelis are not going to send their troops there. Um, so, you know, all of them would be happy to see Iran go down. But, but you know, but, but I do think something is going to happen. And I always think, you know, there's, there's some question we always have to, you know, after all these years, every time something like this has happened, it's led to another spiraling disaster. So, you know, you, you want to ask a question. There was a guy who wrote for Tom Dispatch, the, the next State Department guy, who always used to write this piece he always used to use the phrase, what could possibly happen? Or what could possibly go wrong? Sardonically. Because, of course, we already know. We know, yes, you could level Tehran, you could do whatever, but, but that will not do what Washington thinks it should do. And this, you know, while we don't know what would happen... None of this can end well. And that Washington cannot, will or will not get through its head.
1: yeah, I really like that phrase. this cannot end well. It reminds me of General Petraeus, who is really seen as like a just a, a fount of wisdom within the military, which uh, yes. I suppose, compared to so many other you know knuckle draggers that really do populate the upper ranks of the military, uh, he he is an intelligent man. But he famously, supposedly, tells a, a reporter in a helicopter, you know, tell me how this ends in 2003 when he's first taken over northern Iraq, yes. and I, I can't help but wonder, you know, he's he's now taken to calling Afghanistan a generational war. But uh, a
2: generational struggle. This is actually
1: right, phrase. right, generational, generational struggle. Uh, yeah. Now I wonder if he would even ask that question. I, I don't think he would, I, and I think that Iran is just another example of how of how this war can continue to grow and feed itself. Because every time the Romans took a new province, they found out that now they had to secure that province and that there was a new enemy further to the east or further to the north. And I can't help but wonder mm-hmm. if we're doing the same thing.
2: The only thing about the Romans is they actually did secure the provinces. Please, for a period. Right. We are not. We are not securing the provinces. That's, that's what the U.S. military has been unable to do. I mean, we are creating a series of either failed states or semi-failed states. I mean, I mean, you know, you know, 15 years, isn't it, like 14 or 15 years after the invasion of Iraq, the Iraqis have finally had an election. And the, the two top winners were uh, Muqtada al-Sadr, who fought, you know, fought you. Danny, killed when two of you my were, soldiers. Were, exactly. And, 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 and the second winner was, was the guy who's totally associated with the pro-Iranian militias in Iraq. Now, is that a happy ending to the American story in Iraq? I doubt
1: it. And, and, I, and I think you're absolutely right that we, the, the future is dim, it's very difficult to predict, but what we can be almost certain of is that were we to engage in a regime change or a like lengthy air war with Tehran, uh, we would probably find ourselves with similar, similarly uh, totally predictable, unpredictable circumstances for. would have,
2: phrase. And, and we would have destroyed more places that will, that will, where, that, that, that will take forever to rebuild. And, and, and the lives of more people. And this is a terrible yeah. thing. And you have to you have to wonder, what the hell are we doing after all these years? It's, uh, and it, shall, it, that seems like a reasonable place, don't you think, to end?
1: I think so. I think so, Tom. We want to thank you so much for coming on. Uh, I want to personally thank you for the opportunities you've given to me. And, you know, listeners out there, pick up Tom's book of essays, A Nation Unmade by War. Go to tomdispatch.com. Throw it in your favorites. You, you won't regret it. I started reading it when I was in Afghanistan on a very very shitty internet connection, and and I've never turned back. So uh, please do it. And Tom, thanks again.
2: I, I just want to can I correct one thing before we get off the air? Yes. Okay. Please. You put you put what you just said about what you had done in the past tense, but I just want to point out to people that you know you will you you will have you you I will be. Publishing pieces of yours at Tom Dispatch until I can't say Hell freeze is over, but until as I'm heading towards 74 years, until at least I freeze over. Okay.
0: Right.
1: Perfect. Perfect. That's, yeah. Yeah, Chris,
2: that's deal. thank you also very much.
0: Yeah. Thanks, Tom. Thank you, Tom. It was wonderful to meet you and talk okay. to you.
1: All right, Tom. All right. Hey, we'll talk
0: soon, Tom. Bye. Thank you for joining us today please come join the conversation at www.fortressonahill.com. You can also find us on Twitter at Fortress on a Hill or on Facebook at www.facebook.com forward slash Fortress on a Hill. We want to hear from our listeners about the topics and issues pertinent to America's military and veteran communities. And last but certainly not least, analyze your news and its sources very closely. Verify everything you read, and remember that no one, no matter how powerful, are above criticism, especially those with the power to send others into harm's way. We'll see you next time.